pardon me, it takes me just a second to get unwound. A little wired up. Man, what a, what a beautiful time to, to sing together. And I, I appreciate every one of you lifting up your voices this morning because uh, I think that's the, the beauty of corporate worship is that we have um, multiple voices that, that raise up together with one purpose and one intent, and that is to lift up the name of God, our Father, um, and that we have that in union in Jesus Christ. Man, that's uh, such a special time, such a fantastic time together. This morning, we are, uh, at, for our message, um, we're beginning a new sermon series called Enemy of the State. And um, that might have, like I said, piqued your interest a little bit, uh, especially as we look uh, throughout the, the world today and we see what many people have deemed and called out enemies. And, and I guess if you were to consider the actual terminology enemy of the state, an, an enemy of the state would technically be someone or uh, a person that is, um, is of particular interest, a criminal that is one that is condemned by the entire by an entire nation. And when I consider this this message series, I thought about specifically what Satan has done to the kingdom of God and what he tries to do to you and I as citizens of that kingdom. And he becomes public enemy number one. And it's not just the fact that he's our enemy but that he becomes the enemy of certain states that we have been promised. And I'm not talking about state like the state of Tennessee or the state of Georgia. I'm talking about a state that means a particular condition that we are promised to live and reside and to dwell in through the salvation in Jesus Christ. There are certain conditions, kind of like a... Um, Ice is a, state of, is a state of H2O, or water is a state of H2O. We are living in, and we, we, we reside in a particular state, a particular condition that's been promised to us by God. And the first message in this series, um, I've titled, The State of Forgiveness. The State of Forgiveness. Now, we'll all recognize that forgiveness is one of those things that we know have been promised to us through Jesus Christ, right? And, and a lot of times when we talk about being forgiven, we think about this one particular time, this one particular instance on the cross some 2,000 years ago that promised us forgiveness. And it seems like that was a, a snapshot in time that seemed to be a, a timeless uh, instance or a timeless uh, event for all of mankind. What we fail to realize a lot of times is that that ushered in a new condition for all mankind who called on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Instead of just being forgiven at that one particular moment in time, what Jesus did was begin a new condition of the state of forgiveness for all of those who call on Him as our Lord. And as we do that this morning, we're going to be studying through Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to pray for us as we open up God's word and ask him to speak to us and, uh, and through his word uh, and through my voice as well. 
as he delivers his message. God, you are almighty and all-powerful and all-sovereign. Lord, we know that your word is eternal. We know that your word is inerrant. And it comes to us, Lord, as a timeless reminder of the truth and the goodness of you, our Lord. I pray, Father, that this morning as we are are approaching this subject matter of living in the state of forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that you remind us in our heart of hearts what you have promised us through Jesus Christ. And may may we give ourselves over to that and accept those promises and live in the midst of those promises each and every day. In Christ I pray. Amen. So I'm going to read for us out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 18, because this really sets the stage for for us living in this state of forgiveness, this state of perpetual forgiveness, this condition that's been promised to us by the Lord. Now, the writer of Hebrews does this by comparing an old system, an old system of the uh, the sacrificial system that was temporary, in which animals were sacrificed in order to uh, atone for or pay for the sins of those who offered the sacrifices. And he compares that to the new covenant in which Jesus has become the final sacrifice. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Since the law law has only a shadow of, of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices that they continually offer year after year. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that the sacrificial system was never actually um, able to be perfect in in, in forgiving and atoning for our sins. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? He said, look, wouldn't they have been able to do it one time And they would have never had to do it again. But because it was imperfect, it had to continue over and over and over again, year after year. Since the worshipers once purified, they would have no longer had any conscience of sins. But in sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, and he's talking about Jesus here in verse 5. He takes a a snapshot from a psalm and he applies this to Jesus Christ. And he puts these words of the psalmist in Jesus' mouth. And he says, uh, this is Jesus speaking, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll that I have come to do your will, God. So in verse 8, the writer says, After Jesus says this, that you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he then says, See, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest, he's talking about the sacrificial system again, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. 
He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God also adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now, I believe that there are some, a promise that is given to us in this, um, in this section of Scripture, and that is that we do, in fact, live in a state of forgiveness. Now, how do we know that? And, you know, a lot of people need evidence. How do we know that I live in a state of forgiveness in which I am always forgiven from the time that Jesus was resurrected until now? Well, first of all, I recognize that I live in the state of forgiveness because in Hebrews 10.10... It says that Jesus' sacrificial death was a one-and-done deal. It was a one-and-done deal. It happened one time. It'll never happen again. He says this specifically. He says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. This was a one-time thing. God had worked his way up to it. Through all of the history of Scripture, through the, through the people of Israel, through His promises, through His covenants, he, he, that pinnacle around Jesus' life, his, his death, His burial, and His resurrection, and that was it. That was, the, that was the final event that ushered in a state of forgiveness for all people. Now, I also know that I live in a state of forgiveness because... Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and he's advocating for us right now. Now, a lot of times when we think about and we consider resurrection, uh, say like Resurrection Sunday, we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus, is, that Jesus has risen from the grave, right? But something that we, I think sometimes we don't think about very often is that Jesus was resurrected from the grave 2,000 years ago and he's been alive ever since. We think about Jesus as somebody that's, that's far away, somebody that will come back someday. But we don't think about him actually being alive and well and being with the Father 24-7. And the writer of Hebrews says this, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, dead men don't sit at the right hand of anybody. Jesus Christ, after offering that sacrifice, was glorified back with the Father, and he sits right beside him. And what does he do whenever he's there with him? We know, as Paul says in Romans chapter, not, chapter 6, that Christ, that having been raised from the dead, that he will not die again. He is alive. He wasn't just alive on that first Easter. He's not just alive on every Easter that we celebrate each year. He's alive 365 days a year. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So I know that I live in a state of forgiveness because Jesus died to forgive me 
for my sins. It was a one-time deal. It never has to be done again. I know that that's true because Jesus is alive. The writer of Hebrews and Paul also talks about that Jesus is alive and well right now. And there's other evidence right now that we can look at across the world and say, yep, that's evidence right now that I live in a state of forgiveness and the promises that what God has given me in his word are true. And that's the fact that this, there's no longer a sacrificial system in place. Think about this for a second. We look back at the history of the Jewish people, the history of Israel, and we see that there was a sacrificial system in place up until about the time that Jesus was crucified, buried, and, and resurrected. Now, they tried to continue that sacrificial system a little bit longer, but God said, now, there's no need for it anymore. And whenever... The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. It's never been done again. There are no more sacrifices offered. Now, you can, as an archaeologist or historian, can go through and say, well, that's because they can't find the, the foundations of the temple, and once they find that, they're going to you know, rebuild the altar and rebuild the Holy of Holies. And do I'm here to tell you, as sure as I'm standing here, the sacrificial system will not ever be reinstated. Right. Because God won't allow it. And the reason he won't allow it is because the final sacrifice has already been sacrificed. And because we can look out across our own existence in this life and realize that there is no sacrificial system left in place, we can say, well, God must have, must have destroyed that system for some reason, right? The writer of Hebrews says... Starts with Jesus' words, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. And specifically in verse 18, to reiterate that there is no longer a sacrificial system in place, the writer says, Now where there are forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The sacrificial system has been eliminated. Instead, just as we've already spoken about, we have a, a priest, we have a Lord, we have a Savior who lives and reigns forever and sits there with God our Father to advocate for us the very thing that the sacrificial system on earth was intended to do. Now Jesus does 24-7 for me and you. And if Jesus is doing that, consistently, never sleeps, never gets tired, then I can promise you that the promise that he started on the day that he was resurrected is the same condition now that we also enjoy because he lives to advocate for each one of us all the time. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 says, Now many have become priests. He's speaking of the sacrificial system. But they become priests because they were prevented by death from remaining in office. But Jesus remains forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he's alive. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. So the first idea is to recognize, A, that we were promised forgiveness. And that we live in a perpetual state 
of forgiveness because Jesus is alive. He stands to advocate for each one of us every time that we make a mistake. For those of us that call him our Lord, he stands there for the Father and he looks down at everything that I do and he goes, yep, he's forgiven for that one. And he's forgiven for that one. And ew. He's forgiven for that one too. And that one. And, that. and he probably never shuts up just talking about me. But just as we have known throughout Scripture, just as we know for everything that is good, there is an antithesis, right? There are these, as the Apostle John calls it, this, the spirit of the Antichrist, which basically means anything that is adverse to Christ, the opposite of Jesus Christ. And this enemy wants to tell us that we do not live in a state of forgiveness. This enemy wants to interrupt these promises that God has given us through Jesus Christ. And that's how Satan becomes the enemy of the state. Satan has become first the enemy of our state of forgiveness. And the first way that he tries to do this is he tries to convince us that Jesus was not sufficient. He tries to convince us that Jesus was not enough. He might have been enough then, but he's not enough now. You know, even Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said that Jesus told him, he goes, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul asking God to take away this thorn in the flesh that he had, and, and you can argue to the cows come home on what that thorn was. It doesn't say, so I'm not going to say. But what we can say is that no matter what it was that Paul was asking for God to take away, God looked at him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ. But Satan wants to say, now, it might have been good enough for, for Paul, but it wasn't good enough for Jeff. Or it wasn't good enough for you. And there's some people that put themselves through constant penance because they feel like what Jesus did on the cross, the promises that God gave us to forgive us forever through Him was not enough. And it gets really bizarre sometimes on how people, enter, how people continue to act on this penance with themselves. There's a, um, I ran across this article some years ago and I have a little folder that I put things in just in case I might actually use them one day. And this was something that, that uh, I remember reading. So in the Philippines, there is a man that allows himself, because of his penance, because he feels like he owes God something for what he did for him, because he feels like maybe Jesus' crucifixion wasn't enough, he allows himself to be crucified Every year. And I'm not talking about a reenactment. I'm talking about he allows himself to be nailed to a cross. He puts a crown of thorns on his head with the blood, the whole nine yards, the nails in his hands. I didn't, there's a video. I didn't want to gross anybody out. But this man has been doing this for 30 years. He's been crucified 30 times. I'm so thankful that Jesus did it once. He did it once for you and I. I don't have to do this. 
You know, I, and, and I even go as far sometimes as, as scratching my head in some of the things that people put themselves through in, in penance, or so to say, to, to pay or to repay God for the things that they have done wrong. God says, don't do that. I've already done that for you. Don't, don't put Jesus back on the cross again. I've already nailed him to the cross. I've already taken him down. I've already resurrected. He's living with me. Every time that we give this enemy power by saying that Jesus was not sufficient, that we have to beat ourselves up and we have to, to, to pace and we have to punish ourselves for the sins that we commit, we put Jesus right back on that cross. I don't think that's one thing that either you or I want to do. The Apostle John says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the entire world. Jesus was sufficient, and he lives to advocate for each one of us. And John goes specifically to say that not just your sins, not just my sins, but the sins of the world. So for anyone that calls on the name of Jesus Christ to accept that state of forgiveness to him, they can be promised that they can live also in that state of forgiveness. Another way that the enemy tries to convince us, tries to destroy our state of forgiveness, is he tries to convince us not to forgive others. Now, this might not seem such like a big, big deal. But it actually is a really big deal. And that's because Paul himself warns us that Satan will use, Satan will use a, 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 um, a time, a, a particular instance of unforgiveness, of not offering forgiveness to someone who, is, who has wronged us. He will use that to, to, get his, um, to get his claws into us. He will use that to, to weasel into that crack of doubt, that crack of frustration, and to, allow, and to draw us from God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he's, he pleads with the people there in Corinth. He says, forgive, and they're talking about specifically a man that had, had wronged them. He says, forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. And therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to this man. And then specifically in verse 11, he says, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. One of the things that Satan wants to do is try to tell us that we don't need to forgive others or that somebody has done something to us that's so heinous and so terrible that we can't forgive them. When God all along is going, but I did that for you. And see, our state of forgiveness, living in the condition of forgiveness, then is directly related 
to us being willing and able to forgive. Jesus himself says that if you forgive others their offenses, then your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But then he goes back and he, and he says the opposite. But if you don't forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you your offenses. You see, Jesus is saying that as I have forgiven you, as I have given you this condition of forgiveness in which you are eternally forgiven, I want you to pass that eternal forgiveness on to others who wrong you. And that's exactly why Jesus told Peter, when Peter says, how many times should, we, should, we, should I forgive my brother? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now the point was that Jesus wasn't expecting Peter out there with a the calculator going, yeah, that's okay, so 140 times, right? It's like, no, that's not, or 490 times. My math's terrible. Or whatever. The point is not the math. The point is that Jesus is saying it's not this particular number of times you should forgive. It's an, it's a, an eternal number of times that this person has wronged you that you should forgive them. Because we know that God has offered us eternal forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And finally, the enemy tries to destroy our state of forgiveness by burdenness with guilt and with shame. And with, and I put this in quote, the feeling of being unforgiven. And the reason I put that in quotes is because feelings, feelings can be deceiving. Which is exactly why we have this. When we feel something, go back to this. This will direct, this will, this will give you what's true, regardless of how you feel. And it may not feel good to read the truth. <laughs> but that's not the point either. The point is that we are trying to honor a truthful and a good, holy, and righteous God. And Satan uses our feelings to interrupt that relationship, to interrupt, interrupt what we know is true. And what we know is true is that you and I are forgiven. And not just are we forgiven, but Paul tells us in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see what I mean? You go back to what's true. Well, I sure don't feel like, I sure don't feel forgiven. I sure feel like that whatever I did, I need to beat myself up. I need to, to, to hold myself up, to isolate myself, to, beat, to, 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 to pay penance for the things that I have done. And Satan is looking at us and going, you need to live in shame. You need to live in, in personal condemnation. You need to live in personal grief. 
You need to pay the price for the things that you have done. Now don't get me wrong, there's a, there's a, a, a good guilt. There is a good guilt that turns us to repentance, that turns us to God. But I'm talking about that perpetual guilt in which we recognize that we have not allowed ourselves to receive and to accept full state of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. What does that look like for you and I? Well, for one thing, I think it should free our heart. It should free our mind in recognizing that, yes, we are going to make mistakes, that we are going to sin and fall short of the glory of God, even after we have given Him our lives and, and after we have given him, our, um, uh, given him our heart, even after we've been baptized, we're still going to make mistakes. But we recognize that Jesus is always there. Jesus is always alive, advocating for us with the Father. Saying, there's no penalty for that sin. There's no penalty for that sin. There's no penalty for that sin. I've paid that. I've been nailed to the cross for that. Isn't there freedom in that? Doesn't that feel liberating? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, that Jesus Christ is able to save completely those who come from God through him. He always lives to intercede for them. That's a promise that I think some of us need to hear this morning. That we live in a state of forgiveness and we do not need to let the enemy of the state tell us otherwise. That Jesus Christ... His one and done sacrifice, His one and done resurrection, His eternal life that He's spending right now with the Father advocating for you and I whenever we do make those mistakes, has freed us from being a prisoner to that guilt, to that shame, to that feeling of unforgiveness. Some of us this morning might need to take that feeling of unforgiveness and give it over to the Lord. We might need to recognize once and for all that Jesus has paid my price. Jesus has paid the price of the sin that I've committed. And I no longer need to pay that price any longer. You're not able to do it anyway. Some of us might need to receive that forgiveness for the first time. Or some of us might have walked with the Lord for a period of time. But then we recognize that when we had stepped away from our relationship with Him, that we need to, to, to find that, that place of, 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 of penance, of reparation to the Lord for the time that we've been away. The problem is, that's what the enemy is trying to tell you. 
What Jesus did for you once and for all is there forever. That we live in a state of perpetual forgiveness. We don't have to worry about whether our last breath is going to be asking for forgiveness for something that we did right before we breathe our last. How terrible would that be? How terrible would it be to have to live with that fear that if I don't ask for forgiveness right before I draw my last breath, then God's not going to forgive me. God says rubbish or garbage, whichever language you want to use. He says, I've forgiven you. You've been forgiven. You live with Jesus Christ as your Lord. You live in a state of forgiveness. And therefore, if some point we accidentally pass from this life to another, we're not left wondering, well, am I going to be forgiven for those things that I didn't confess? Of course not. God's already forgiven you those things in Jesus Christ. And he stands there as an advocate for you and I. For those of us that have our hearts turned toward him, our hearts geared towards repentance and following him in all that we do, we can be assured that nothing that we can do will separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. I want that to be our reflection this morning as we take communion. First on that eternal promise of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That Jesus... When he said that it is finished, that is exactly what he meant. It is finished. It's done. It's never to be done again. And second, I want us to accept, maybe for the first time, or maybe we need to re-accept the fact that we live in a state of perpetual forgiveness for a God that loves you and I and has loved us through Jesus Christ and that Christ stands as an advocate for you and I forever and there's nothing that we can do because of his sacrifice because he has eliminated that sacrificial system and paid the last and final sacrifice to forgive us for our sins there's nothing that we can do as disciples of Jesus Christ to take ourselves out of his love. Father, we give you thanks for your son Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice, Lord, that you offered through him. Lord, remind us, I pray, remind us always, not just today, that we are forgiven. That we need not bear sin, need not bear guilt and shame beyond those things that bring us to repentance. Lord, that your son Jesus Christ has paid all the price that needs to be paid. Father, I pray that none of us cheapen the grace of God from your son Jesus Christ. I pray that we don't cheapen 
the act of Christ on the cross. But that when we take the bread and we take the cup, we recognize what has been done for each of us once and for all. A father that loves us, a son that advocates for us, that forgives us forever. In Christ I pray. Amen. Let's eat together.